0: Exton Moss Experiment Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to our spooky Halloween edition of the
1: Ooh.
0: Exton Moss Experiment. <laughs> This year we are watching the BBC 2011 drama series, The Fades. But before we do that, it's time to get the lid off the gin and open up the tonic screwdriver. This time, we are drinking the handmade gin company, Pumpkin Spice. It's a 20% gin liqueur, and we're drinking from batch 4,342, so they make a bit of this. The Infobolic says, a premium gin liqueur handmade by a small team of artisan distillers in Britain for the whole world to savour and enjoy. And that's it. So, we're just drinking this neat. Simon, have you got any ice in yours? No, don't be silly. Of course not. quite Cri- there's a very potent smell coming out of that. That's quite medicinal.
1: Oh, I think that's quite sweet. I mean, I'm not actually a massive fan of sweet pumpkin. I'm a huge fan of pumpkin as a savoury ingredient. And pumpkin curry is absolutely gorgeous. One of the things I I always used to order when I was um, in Nepal, if they did a pumpkin and and paneer curry on the the menu, straight to the top of the list because it is gorgeous.
0: I can't say that I'm actually smelling pumpkin out of that, but that's nothing unusual because sometimes things don't smell. But anyway, eyes down, dive in. It's very smooth, It's quite sweet, but not overpoweringly so. It's nice. There's not really anything particularly special about it. It certainly
1: doesn't smack you around the head with pumpkin.
0: No, as a sort of a Halloween drink, it's a nice little curio and a novelty. I don't think I'd rush back for this. I've just dropped an ice cube in to see, because I do like my drinks quite a bit colder than Simon. He views it as being watered down. It's not really all to the taste, although I must admit I prefer the temperature, but that's, again, it depends how you like your, your drinks, but I have ice and liqueurs, I enjoy it. It's all right, but it's nothing particularly special for me. I'll give it a three.
1: Yeah, it's a, a three from me as well. It It's nice enough. It tastes sweet without any particularly spicy flavour. I'm I'm not getting any spice off that at all. There is a bit of a taste of pumpkin. As I say, sweet pumpkin, I'm not... I don't actively dislike, but it's not a taste that I I search out.
0: But as a novelty for Halloween, it's going to be a talking point at your party. So, bring your glasses and let's descend into the undergallery of Podcasting House. We're going to open up the Black Archive. (laughs) This is the repository of all the lost film, TV and radio that's ever existed, and we've got it all down here in the basement. Simon, what do you want to rescue and release back into the wild this week?
1: Well, bearing in mind it's Halloween and Hmm. spooky-spookiness, what I would like to rescue is the Canterville Ghost. Ooh!
0: Okay, tell me
1: more. So, The Canterville Ghost is a short story written by Oscar Wilde. It has been adapted multiple times for television, and there are surviving adaptations from 1974, 1997, 2020. And there are two editions that don't survive in the archives. Um, A 1962 version in the Sunday Night Play strand, ...and a 1966 version in the Mystery and Imagination series. Both of those have an existing domestic audio recording, but no visuals. I think Bruce Forsyth played the ghost in one of those adaptations. Really? Yeah, Bruce Forsyth started off as an actor, but was much better known as a a game show host and ultimately the presenter of Strictly Come Dancing. But he played Sir Simon de Canterville in the 1966 adaptation as part of Mystery and Imagination.
0: Oh, well, we'll have that back. Yeah, that sounds great.
1: According to IMDB, that was his first acting credit.
0: Yeah, because he did act Bruce Forsyth. Not very often, but he did have quite a few non-presenter roles over the years. What's the one in Um, the supermarket? uh, Slinger's Day. That's the one. We really should cover that at some point, it sounds suitably awful. But, conversely, I am going to go for a tiny, tiny fragment of Missing TV. It's from Doctor Who. And given the Halloween theme, I'm going to go for the one with the Master as a skull-faced monster in it. And it's the deadly assassin. It's the end of episode three, which was trimmed out on a repeat thanks to the interventions of Mary Whitehouse, Grandma Blowjob herself god rest her soul but this was lost and it's a a brief shot of the doctor drowning and it was a freeze frame that was edited out now i believe ian levine had a vhs copy and that is the bit that's been reinserted in but it's of considerably lower quality for the re-edits so just because of that i want it back So, here we are, back in the viewing room, and this time it is The Fades. This was a series broadcast on BBC Three from the 21st of September 2011, and it was six hour-long episodes. It was produced by Caroline Skinner, and we've got quite a nice little cast list on the quiet. At the time, some of them weren't known, but there's people in here like uh, Natalie Dormer, who was, at the time, quite well-known. Uh, Daniela Nardini, who was best known to a lot of people, I think, from this life, although she's been in lots of other things since, and a handful of others as well, which I'm sure Simon will fill us in on. So I'm not going to spoil this anymore. I'm just going to hit play because you know this and I don't. So I want to be nicely surprised. Without further ado, Ron VT, The Fades, Episode 1.
1: Sarah's dead. You don't know that? I do, and I'm sorry. She's also a spirit who has decided that the best use of her time is to follow you around. <laughs> That's why I'm here as a translator, because <laughs> I can talk to ghosts. You were having an affair with her. I just told you you're being haunted by the ghost of your wife, and you were Neil, killed. I need to have a serious conversation with you. You were having an affair. Tell him something I wouldn't know.
0: He called me Squidge for three months after we first got together and then he dropped it because he decided that he hated pet names. You used to call her Squidge. I don't want this bit. I'm calling the police. Four days ago, I watched him Mark, sleep with a woman called Vicky.
1: Mark, please. And it broke my heart. Four days ago, she, Sarah's ghost saw you sleeping with a woman called Vicky. Fuck off. We were angelics. I still am one. We're a different breed of people. It was Haunted Secrecy, Mark.
0: Well, that was rather good.
1: It's very good. Um, It actually won the BAFTA for the Best Drama Series 2012. So the the year after it was broadcast. And there were plans for a second series. And bearing in mind it won Best Drama Series, I don't understand why that didn't happen. But it, it didn't.
0: Well, we were going to watch this episode at a time. We didn't. We watched the whole thing, and we've done this separately, which is the first time we've done this. But I absolutely loved this. As I said before we even started, the cast list, and it's fairly impressive. I take it you have got uh, a nice list of alumni for us. Um,
1: Well, what I was going to do is read the the wikipedia segment because that doesn't actually spoil anything. Oh yeah fine you, fine by gives me. gives you an idea of of what the the story is. So it did Paul, a student with a history of bedwetting, is haunted by apocalyptic dreams. He is able to see the spirits of the dead, known as the fades, all around him. The fades cannot be seen, smelt, heard, or touched by other humans. They are what is left of humans who have died but not been able to ascend, because the ascension points on Earth have been closing, and few can go through the ones that are still open. Because of this, the fades left on Earth have become embittered and vengeful towards the human race and have since developed a way to become partly human and again regain control of touch with the human world. They remain unseen in the world except for those special few like Paul, called angelics, the ability to perceive the fades. Paul finds himself pulled into a conflict between the angelics and the fades, trying to prevent the fades from regaining physical form and destroying the human race.
0: Well, I went into this not knowing a I- blind thing about it. And it's actually taken me a couple of goes. I tried watching this about 12 months ago, maybe a little bit longer now. It didn't grip me at all. I have no idea why, because second time around, I've put episode one in the player. And the first half of episode one, you're thinking, what the hell is this all about? And then all of a sudden it clicks and everything just falls into place. And by the end of episode one, you are hooked. This is something that we've had it before, but this is not a slow burn. Episode by episode, it's ramped up and ramped up and ramped up, and there's something major in every episode that dovetails beautifully into the next episode. I don't really want to spoil this. This is something that I would really encourage people to go out and watch. But in terms of a really well-made thing... Bear in mind, this started out live on BBC Three, and in those days, BBC Three was a wonderful testing ground for stuff like this. The series itself ends on a cliffhanger of sorts. I can't understand why it wasn't recommissioned. It was brilliant.
1: Yes, I have to agree. I, I think everything about it is great. It is brilliantly acted. There, there's one... She's not pointless, but she's not particularly well realised. Oh, is realized it the angelic?
0: Or is it Alice?
1: Is it... No, um, the the girlfriend. Really? Veronica. Yeah, because I, I think it, it's not that she's a bad actress because she's been in other things and it's been very good. It's just I don't think there, there's a, a a massive amount for her to do.
0: No, in fairness, it's uh, Jay, played by Sophie Wu, and I'm sure she has gone on to lots of other things. But I saw her role. No, as- no, 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 different girlfriend,
1: girlfriend of the teacher. What, Natalie Dormer, the wife? No, 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 no. the the wife of the teacher. Uh, Right at the very beginning, the teacher pops off with um, a woman, takes her back to his house, and it all falls apart because they go into his wife's room rather than his room.
0: Oh, she's not even listed on Wikipedia in the the cast list. I know who you're talking about. Real pretty long-haired brunette. Yes, I know.
1: Eleanor Matsura, she played um, Joe Nakashima in The Sontaran Stratagem
0: that i had not clogged. but yes i'm with you on that i mean she's there as sort of a cog in the machine and yeah. and she kind of uh, she does kind of fulfill an
1: important role
0: but it's not
1: it it's an important role in the humanizing subplot so the uh, one of the angelics who gets killed in the first episode and comes back as a fade and you have her husband who is one of paul's teachers and he's struggling to cope with it, with her death, and then when she comes back at, as a fade, and he's able to see her and able to interact with her, it's obvious that the relationship isn't going to work because of the fact that she has changed so much, and he's got this other woman on the side. Oh no, she's not on the side. When 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 his wife is around, she's just not in the picture. And then she comes back again later, and. There's a whole really quite nasty sequence set in the school, and, and she's there in that. But she's she's pretty much background throughout. And yes. she's, the, she's the only one that didn't really leap off the screen. Even the uh, All the others, even the minor parts, really come at you. Uh,
0: sort of. The Angelics, I thought, were a bit of a wasted opportunity. Th- that character I didn't really have a problem with. I thought that some of the ways that she sort of popped back into the narrative were a little bit contrived. I mean, if you been that person in that situation where you'd gone home for a one-night stand with someone and the ex-wife was still on the scene. You would not have gone back to that, but she kept popping up and she turned up at the house and he called her right at the end of the story to sort of get me the fuck out of this situation sort of thing, and they drive off to the Orkneys. That bit I found a little bit stretched, but she filled the purpose. I mean, there are only a couple of things in the entire thing. Bear in mind the premise of this bloody thing that I thought were a little bit flawed. The one thing which isn't really a a fault of the writing, it's the actual character itself, was John, the leader of the Fades. He was trying to resurrect all the Fades through this rather contrived method and get them all reborn back into the world. The problem is they need humans to stay in the world. That's what they need to sustain themselves. There's going to come a point where they run out of humans.
1: Oh, unless they set up farms. I mean, there, there's a, a brilliant, brilliant TV series called The Strain, which was um, Guillermo del Toro. Um, it's really nasty. It's a very gruesome show. A Superb story. Brilliant watch. Um, but they set up human farms. There is a film... The Daywalkers.
0: Oh, I don't know it. You're more versed in this than I am.
1: I, I think so, where <laughs> the um, the vampires have become the uh, the dominant species and they have human farms. But,
0: but they, didn't, everything... they didn't go
1: down that route because it was all encapsulated in this one town.
0: But it's very cleverly done. I enjoyed this far, far more than I thought. I was gutted at the end of it because I I know there was only one series. And even though it's reassuringly packaged as the Fade Series 1 on the Blu-ray, obviously that there wasn't... I just can't see with something that strong why it didn't get a second series. Everything about this. The standout for me, actually, and I did send you a message halfway through watching it, that he'd have actually, if they're going to cast a black Doctor Who, Daniel Kaluuya, his his performance in this... Now, I've only seen him His face is familiar, but I've only seen him in a series called Harry and Paul. It was Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse. And he played a character, a silent character, called Parking Patawayo. He didn't have any lines at all. It was an entirely physical performance. And he was brilliant in that as well. So but you said that he's uh he's now been head on to these he's part of the Marvel universe isn't he?
1: He plays Wakabi in the Black Panther franchise. He was in Black Mirror, Skin, Psychoville and he also played Barkley in Planet of the Dead, one of the bus passengers.
0: Yes, he did. Which funnily enough I've I've watched recently and it's um Planet of the Dead's a good episode but it's just a stretch normal episode. But I've gassed on about what I think about it. The fades to you, what were your overriding thoughts?
1: Um, Well, I mean, I liked it enough to suggest that I did this as our Halloween episode. So I've always been a fan of this. Now, I have a slight problem with the plot in that it's very, very similar to the plot of a role-playing game from Mm -hmm. the World of Darkness publishing house called Orpheus. It's actually a very, very similar plot to Orpheus. And World of Darkness, they're the vampire, the masquerade. Um, They do vampire, they do werewolf, they do changeling. They're a really well-known RPG publishing house. And I find it kind of difficult to imagine that anybody on the production staff didn't realize that this was a bit of a copy. But other than that, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I didn't think there was a bad performance in it. As I said, I, I think there is one character that doesn't who doesn't really pop off the screen, but she's she's not given an awful lot to do either. It's a big cast, and they're all great. It looks fantastic. Mm. It's um, bookcased by scenes in an abandoned shopping centre, and they use a, an actual abandoned shopping centre that um, looked brilliant. There is quite a lot of sort of urbex in this. There's an abandoned asylum that they go to, you know, abandoned orphanage they go to at one point. Well, there is an abandoned asylum as well, isn't there?
0: Yes, there is, yeah. Which must have been spooky as hell to film in. And there's an abandoned underground bunker thing, um, which I assume was a set. But it was all very atmospheric. I mean, the, the action just ramps up in a great leap between episodes four and five when all of a sudden there's people going missing left, right and centre because the Fades are feeding and they set up this help centre at the local school. All of a sudden the, the scale of the thing just ramps up between because credit you, sequences.
1: And there are some things in it that you just don't expect to see on television. The angry dead to Fades stand ready to overwhelm the living. And we're not ready for them. Many people have left town already. There's only one person that can do anything. And that's my best friend, Paul. Not
0: listening! Paul! Who's special? So special that he died and came back to life. Yeah, he's Frankenstein meets Neo. Paul's back! What I am, who I am, has got to mean something. You have 30 seconds to tell me everything I need to know about Paul. He came back for a reason. To stop you.
1: He's acquired powers that are freaky. (laughs) you trying to get that warrant for everyone here. There's going to be reborns everywhere. Do not walk away
0: from me. Don't walk away from me.
1: Paul wants to set the fates free.
0: I'll find a way to help you to free you. No good luck with that.
1: Some of the the earliest victims of the of the fates. Our twelve-year-old kids. Yeah, that—that that was quite a surprise. The nasty
0: little shits, what? and you're happy to see them go. But yeah, even so, I get your point. One
1: of the major, major characters is just shot and killed in a really quite an offhand way that came as a massive surprise. I like that. I thought I thought it was great. I um and I thought the fact that the normal rules of oh yeah, there's not going this character's gonna be fine because they're a kid um and so they'll get a, a free pass, not a bit of it.
0: Basically wearing a t-shirt, main character do not kill, and then yeah. bang bang, it's uh yeah, that's I like target that.
1: practice. <laughs> um, the plot is clever and for all I've talked about it, it being a ripoff of Orpheus. Orpheus is a, a very good and clever plot. And there, there are actually some fairly big differences between the two. And Orpheus is a giant world-spanning storyline, whereas this is really parochial and it's a, happening in a small town. And the other thing is there aren't really any bad guys. You've got the fades and they're, they're a really nice take on the uh, on the zombies mm, because yeah. they come back and they have their intellect morals are out of the window, but they have their intellect, they have their speed. It's not the shambling, mindless zombies that you're used to. They're intelligent and quick and much more scary.
0: There was also a logic to the backstory. It wasn't just a sort of ghost coming back to life, turning into zombies, killing people, dealing with it. Oh no, we must deal with this there was a real deep backstory to why all this was happening and how it could be solved and what have you i think the only thing which i thought was a little bit contrived was the very end spoiler coming up where paul opens up the the, The ascension point yeah and they're all sucked into it from miles around which is not how it's worked before that was the only thing I thought was a bit contrived, but it, it did wrap up the story nice and neatly. And
1: um, except it was exactly the same effect because you you see one of the angelics who gets killed who does ascend, and you see her turn into light and then turn into into birds, and that's exactly what happens to the
0: to the fades to but, the fades. But they now- do need to be near the ascension point. But when Paul opens up the the one in the shopping centre at the end. They're just, from miles around, wherever they are, they all get sucked through this ascension point. Mm. That was the only thing I thought was, oh, you've contrived that a bit. A couple of lines of dialogue would have explained that away. This is a different type of ascension point.
1: I did quite like the, uh, the way Paul, when he, he really comes into all of his powers, um, grows a pair of wings. Oh. <laughs> and he, he's grown a pair of wings before. But in a very unusual situation, what yeah. was that exactly? He was jacking off and when he jizzed, he grew a pair of wings. Now, this happens once. So going on for how ma- how many weeks
0: how many 17-year-old lads only jack off once in several weeks. Yeah, but then he had sex with Jay and presumably the wings didn't appear. So maybe it was just sort of a that was the catalyst to getting him to grow his wings. That I did think was quite, <laughs> quite That was quite moment. funny. But there were lots of other bits in it that I really enjoyed, like the fades regrowing, and that was never fully explained why they suddenly grow this cocoon and the reborn, but the whole notion is that they just feed off human flesh, and that's what brings them back in. Just sort of gloss over that. It's never really fully explained how and why that happens. But that's their way back but into it, the world.
1: But it, it's horror. You don't have to explain the why in horror in yeah. the same way that you do in science fiction. They explain the how. They explain mm. how John finds out about this. And he, he has really—he tra- actually has a really tragic backstory. Um, mm. And the way he discovers that eating human flesh is the thing that will bring him back to being able to interact with the, the world is really tragic.
0: That bit I actually thought was quite poignant. And the other bit was where Sarah is watching Mark have sex with Brunette Beauty. I can't imagine anything that would leave a soul in torment more than watching the person you've left behind having sex with somebody else. So that I actually find, uh, I found that quite an uncomfortable scene to watch because you just feel for her, even though they're getting divorced. It's clearly a wrench of a moment. And then Natalie Dormer's reborn later on, clambering out of a bathtub, and you, you get a nice gratuitous breast shot and a, a cracking shot of her ass, which I'm sure would have entertained you, Dr. Exton, but for me it was an absolute joy. <laughs> and we found the level. Yes, there we go. Although you did get your shot of, uh, what's his name, John's arse as he was walking through the field. And I think, uh, what is it, Paul? He was naked, yeah. He what, 17-year-old? Yes, I know. You've never been attracted to younger lads, I know. No. He was of legal age, you know. you know, it's, But some, I mean, the one thing I will say is I don't do gore. I don't do horror and real nasty stuff. The only bit of the whole thing that I could not watch was right at the beginning. Oh, the eye. No. Oh... Couldn't watch it. There was a good couple of minutes where uh, Daniela Nardini's character was scraping his eye with a knife to get the cataract off it. And I just couldn't watch. No, no, no. I'm sure it was one of those scenes that was all implied. You didn't actually see anything. But I just turned away at that point.
1: And you did see his eye and you did see things being bottled about with it. And there were some very nice sort of Gaia touches in that when whenever the angelics who could heal did the healing then they started creating butterflies in their in their mm. mouth which was a nice effect and then when the fades ascend
0: they turn into birds
1: they turn into birds now they, it was a little bit judgmental because some of them turned into white birds and some of them turned into black birds and if it was purely a a natural process which is what they were trying to put it across as then why do you have to make that judgment?
0: Well, it's only symbolism. It's a you know a semantic leap for the audience. Look at this bad person, all dressed in black, sort of thing, which has been the case for years. I don't think it's a statement of race. <laughs>
1: Um, I wasn't thinking that it was a statement of race. I was thinking it was a moral judgment on I did the one you particularly nice with it it is, is right at the end, yeah, yeah, where yeah. Sarah turns into white birds and John turns into blackbirds. The inference being that she's one of the good guys, so therefore she turns into pure white, whereas he he's the protagonist, so he turns into this dirty black. Whereas if it was an if it was a purely natural process, there wouldn't be any judgment on. it. Oh
0: yes, true. It was just you know it was a a bit of semantic colour for the viewers. That's all. I've just looked at this and thought of all the things that uh, the the shit that's been on telly and been recommissioned. This wasn't. I'm really quite miffed because this is so BBC Three. It hurts. This is precisely the sort of stuff that they were putting out. Uh, in the, that that the first sort of. Five, six years that BBC Three was going, they experimented with a load of different styles. I actually thought it was a great TV channel, and then they had the bright idea of sending it online only. And strangely enough, the viewing figures bombed, and they've not done anything like this since, really. Or nothing that's made any impact. It just seems a a huge waste, because the second series... It would have had to be bigger and darker, but you've set yourself up there a really good premise. The series closes with the sky turning red.
1: Yeah, it, it was fantastic, fantastic, and it might be that they plan to do a a second series. But e& incredibly D-
0: short-sighted of the producer, the higher arms.
1: Yeah, but what I was going to go on and say is that Ian D. Kestecker who who played played paul Paul. so the 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 primary character within a year he was one of the series leads in marvel's agents of shield and in the marvel cinematic universe and it might be that it was we could bring the fades back but actually can we bring the fades back without the character of paul because it was completely built around him
0: ah that yeah that might explain it then Ah, right. Cause it was twenty twelve when it was announced there wouldn't be another series.
1: Yeah, and Marvel's Agents of Shield started in twenty thirteen. So there would and there would have been quite a lot of pre-production before then. So he may just not have been available. And without without him, they didn't have a series.
0: I think I've run out of things to say about it, because I could gush about this. For all the niggly nitpicky things that I'm I'm finding holes with, that was six hours of really, really good TV. I imagine you've made reams of notes on this. What have you got for us this time?
1: There is any amount of stuff that I could could say about this. We could talk about this for a long time, but there would be massive spoilers. And what I don't want to do is spoil this for anybody who might go ahead and watch it, because normally we're fairly fast and loose with the, the spoiler things. With this, because it's so recent and because it's so good. If we've sold this to you in any way, go out and get the, the DVD. It's as cheap as anything and treat yourself to watching it. It is brilliant. There are some nasty bits in it. For the, if you're particularly squeamish, maybe not for you.
0: There's only the eye thing. That thing is excessively nasty. Ooh, bits in the woods. <sighs> it's all sort of implied rather. I mean, you see the aftermath, but you don't actually see the event. The eye I, thing I, I... Is, is right there on screen. But anyway, yeah. I mean, I mean,
1: I I don't get squeamish with anything. So all, all of this is sort of mood. secondhand if this is a problem for you. But it is a very, very, very good show and has an awful lot of very good names behind the camera and in front of the camera. So it was written by Jack Thorne, who has most recently adapted his dark materials, and that's a bad wolf production, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um he wrote Glue and he wrote This Is England eighty six, eighty eight and ninety. It was produced by Carolyn Skinner, who did Doctor Who between 2011 and 2013, and more recently has done Good Omens and An Adventure in Time and Space. It was also produced by Susan Hogg, who remade Survivors and The Last Train, and also by Angie Daniel, who produced Cucumber, Dead Set, Fear of Fanny, and Fantabulosa. And we will come on and do Fear of Fanny at some point. It is yes, a we wonderful, will. Wonderful bit of television about somebody who is as mad as a box of frogs. In terms of actors, there are loads, many of whom have gone on to do very big things. So we talked about um, Ian DeCastica going on to Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He's also been in Roadkill. He's the young James Herriot. And he was in The Secret of Crickley Hall. Lily Loveless, who played his sister, was Naomi in Skins and Ellie Faber in the Sarah Jane Adventure episode Curse of Clyde Langer. Tom Ellis is the lead character in Lucifer. He played Gary in Miranda. He was Dr. Rush in Rush. He was in The Secret of Crickley Hall and was Thomas Milligan in The Last of the Time Lords. Sophie Wu was in Black Mirror. Claire Rushworth was Ida Scott in The Satan Pit and was also in loads and loads of things. But she was in Black Mirror. She was in Touching Evil. And she was in Spice World, the movie. Highlights of a CV. Natalie Dormer was in Hunger Games, Game of Thrones. She played Anne Boleyn in The Tudors. She was in the updated Penny Dreadful. And she played Irene Adler in Elementary. Robbie G was in Berlin Station, which we should do at some point. It's a fantastic television show. Prime Suspect, Final Act, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Underworld, and Justice League. Jen Murray um, was in the remade Day of the Triffids, which we won't do because it wasn't great, um, and was in Maleficent. Francis McGee was in Justice League, Humans, Black Mirror, In the Flesh, and Layer Cake. Chris Mason turns up in Broadchurch. Theo Barclam Biggs was in Kingsman Secret Service. And if you haven't seen that, that is a film that has you written all over it mm. um, and was in A Touch of Cloth. Joe Dempsey was in Game of Thrones, Skins, and appears as Klein in The Doctor's Daughter. Ruth Gemmel has been in loads of things, but she's in Bridgerton, Home Fires, Penny Dreadful, Utopia, Primeval, first made her na- name in Fever Pitch and Band of Gold. Ian Hanmore was another one who is in Game of Thrones. He appears as Father Angelo in Tooth and Claw and was a background character in the book group, turning up in several episodes of that. Eleanor Matsura was Joe Nakashima in the Santaran Stratagem, but she's also turned up in Wonder Woman, the Justice League, Spooks, Walking Dead and Da Vinci's Demons, and also in Utopia and we will definitely do Utopia at some point. Mm-hmm. Finally, Daniela Nardini, who you said is best known for This Life, was also in Quite Ugly One Morning, which, again, we should do. And her first acting credit was on Take the High Road.
0: Really? <laughs> yep. <laughs> again, another CV highlight.
1: So most people involved in this have gone on to very big things. And looking at it, you can see why, because they all act themselves off the screen.
0: Yeah, seems that Marvels hoovered up quite a few. Well,
1: they know their quality, mm. and they have they have quite a number of English actors involved in it. Because Rory and Amy both went to to Marvel, didn't they?
0: Just cutting across completely. I, I've seen a couple of films this week at the cinema. I've seen June, which have you seen the original?
1: Oh, the one with Sting.
0: Yeah, I've not seen it. I, I don't know anything about it.
1: I've read the book and it bored the crap out of me, so I wasn't particularly interested in sitting through five hours of it or whatever with Sting wandering around in a jockstrap.
0: I really like Dune. Whatever the original's like, I've no idea. But the film that I went to see on Friday, it's like Star Wars for grown-ups. I think you would really enjoy it.
1: Yeah, and the, the new James Bond is supposed to be good.
0: Nobody wants to go and see it. That's going to be one that I'm going to troll off and see on my own one afternoon. Because nobody's remotely interested, I'm surprised. So,
1: but you know what happens at the end?
0: I'm no clue. Don't spoil it. No, I imagine it's a a nice neat wrap up. But no, I don't. So,
1: I mean, it's it's the only thing I know about it, to be honest. Other than the fact that Q is definitively either gay or bisexual because he has a boyfriend.
0: Oh right. Oh, I'm sure that'll send parts of the internet into a frenzy. But the other thing I've seen this week, and I didn't realize it was a sequel, is Venom. And it's littered with English actors playing American parts. Tom Hardy's in it. Um, there's a fellow out of Line of Juicy, I think. I don't know his name, but he plays the, the police officer. Rishia Smith's in it as an American priest. But the cast list, you just look on screen and you think, mm. all of you guys are English. Could they could not find any Americans to play these parts. Oh, and the Spider-Man thing. Uh, w- uh, yes. Um, I've sort of, I thought Venom was sort of the dark version of Spider-Man. Obviously not. Well, he, uh, he kind of
1: is, because Venom initially took over Peter Parker.
0: Ah, right. There we go. So I, I now need to go and track down the first Venom film and see how it all started, because it, it's very much a... It gives you the backstory of how these two have become symbiotic. I fucking loved it. What a great character. That was great.
1: Is it still Tom Hardy playing it?
0: Yes. Oh, no, it wasn't the Tom Hardy character. Well, yeah, I liked his character too, but Venom itself as a character, Mm. marvellous. You've seen Deadpool? (laughs) No, but I've got it downstairs on DVD. I've been lent it by Uh, a mate, so I think it's that sort of anti-hero that I'm going to really latch on to.
1: Right. Don't bother with Venom. Watch Deadpool before you watch anything else.
0: It's on my list this week on the back of that. So should we wrap up the fades? before? <laughs> I've got-
1: the other thing I was going to say about Alumni is another behind the camera. And Farron Blackburn, who directed three of the episodes, also directed The Doctor, The Widow and The Wardrobe and The Rings of a Carton.
0: It's not well-loved as The Rings of x I I, I don't... quite like The Rings of a I I've,
1: I've, I watched it again ooh, a year or so ago, and... Okay, it's not great. But it's not terrible by any chance. It's no dinosaurs on a spaceship either.
0: Oh, good grief, no. No, 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 (laughs) no. It's a nice
1: little standalone story that I quite like. Yes, it is. That's The Rings Carton rather than The Fades, which is a fantastic standalone story that is a terrible shame, didn't get taken any further. But we have six episodes that we can really enjoy and would thoroughly recommend you checking out.
0: But to round us off this time, we have something featuring Tom Baker that's Halloween related. It's from the late 70s and it's a late night story. This was originally going to be our Halloween special. There's six little episodes, quarter of an hour long, sort of adult Jack and Ori, and they're all available on the Doctor Who Armageddon Factor DVD. That is where the sales pitch ends. We both thought we'd go into this, this little known series, quarter of an hour long, Tom Baker, sort of late night horror serials, read by some real big guns. The very first episode written by Nigel Neal, responsible for the Quatermass serials, among many other things.
1: Dr. Axon, what did you think? To be honest, the reason that we're not doing this as a full Halloween episode is because we were both bored crapless <laughs> by the first one. <laughs> um, and really didn't want to watch or listen to any of the rest. Now, it, it's quite an interesting piece with Tom Baker, because I swear he doesn't blink throughout the
0: entire... It's only... Halfway through the first episode, I thought, "This is really quite unsettling." And these are great long speeches to camera. We're talking minutes at a time. That Tom Baker does not blink in this thing. The first uh, episode is called—I can't actually remember—but it's written by Nigel Neal. So I was going into it. Photograph. The photograph that was in it was basically a. Can you describe what it was about?
1: Yes, it was about a, an ill Victorian boy going to get his photograph taken. And you're meant to assume that he's going to get his photo taken because he's about to die. Because this is what the the Victorians did when you memorialize people and they they took photos of people after death so you would be able to remember them or sort of immediately before death so that family would be able to remember them. So you, you go through as, assuming that that's what the story is and The way his mother talks to him, the way his sister talks to him, the way the taxi driver talks to him, the way the photographer talks to him, it all comes across very much as, oh, aren't you brave, poor little thing? Um, I quite understand under the circumstances. And then they get back home and there's a massive argument between uh, this mother and the kid's doctor with the doctor saying, why have you done this? He is going to recover. He's ill, but he's likely to recover from this um and you probably just set him back massively and then in the kid's room where they have the um
0: the photograph on the mantelpiece
1: yeah and he starts interacting with the with the photo and that's kind of put across as uh, sort of a delirious fever dream because he's he's ill and he's been pushed about from pillar to post while getting this photo photo taken if i was to read it myself I would probably quite enjoy the story. Now, I've always had a problem with audio books because I like to know for myself the way the story sounds. So somebody reading a book to me doesn't put the inflections that I would put in in my mind and isn't reading it in my voice, which is what I expect to hear. So I've never really been a big fan of, of audio books. This is kind of heresy, but I was never a massive fan of Jack and Ori for exactly this reason.
0: Shocking indictment. But I thought Tom Baker would rescue this, and even he can't drag this out of the mire. When he stuck them sideways out of the bed, his legs felt as if they were doing a new thing, something they didn't
1: understand. His legs were still sore in the places where they bent, his arms too, when he held them up to go through the sleeves he saw a face low down in a great wardrobe mirror. A terrible, thin face with perfectly round, shiny eyes, shadows you could almost see through that belonged to a thing, not a
0: person. It's very unsettling from the title sequence starting onwards. It's just, everything about it's unsettling. It's, for something that's only quarter of an hour long, it does what it sets out to do. It's just a little bit sort of, ooh, really... But the end of it, I mean, did the photograph replace the boy or take over the boy or what? And it was all very nebulous, really. I didn't know what had gone on in the end, and I don't like stories that are a little bit unclear.
1: Um, Well, no, he didn't replace the boy because the photograph was all in – my reading of it was that the photograph was all in his mind.
0: Whereas it, it seemed like that the photograph had come to life. Yeah, but all in it. his
1: mind, and he um as a as a delirium because he he'd been pushed into a, a a feverish episode by going out and getting this photograph taken. That, that was my reading of it.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of those things that you, you take away from it what you take away from it. But it wasn't for me. I really wanted. I thought you know six, twelve, fourteen minute episodes. We can do this, no problem. I haven't looked at a single one of the others. I bored the arse off me.
1: And there there are some other good writers, aren't there? Because there was um, Saki is one of them. And was Guy de Maupassant one yep, of the
0: others? Yeah, uh, It's a good writing list. But if Tom Baker can't save it, then we're buggered, really.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid so. So we couldn't stand to do the other four. So that, that's why we brought the, uh, the Fades forward, because we were thinking about doing this next year when we have time to...
0: Actually sit, <laughs> and sit down actually in sit person. For- we sit and breathe. <laughs> We're still getting back into the swing of this in-person thing, so the recordings are still sort of half and half live and half and half recorded every Sunday with copious amounts of gin remotely. Uh, and this is—I think this is our first Halloween remotely, isn't it? Century that,
1: Falls, you recorded while you were here.
0: Yeah. So, we, oh, we planned in advance for once.
1: We did Christmas special remotely last year.
0: Oh yes, yeah. we were both Fox wanked by the end of it. <laughs> just that, I was off my face on Tramadol, so... <laughs> yeah, that old excuse. But uh with that, boys and girls, we shall sort of sign off because coming up this weekend we have the first episode of The Last Hurrah of Jodie Whittaker as Doctor Who. I'll just park that there. If you're going to enjoy it, really run with it, enjoy it. I think the two of us here at Podcasting House might be going into it with a little bit more trepidation.
1: I'm but actually, I'm really hoping that it works out. I'm oh, so really, am I.
0: Really hoping that it turns out to be a Children of Earth. I don't want Doctor Who to fail, but you can only judge a horse by the races it's run, and uh, so far Chibnall as a jockey has been whipping in quite the wrong direction.
1: I'm afraid I have to agree.
0: So, I'm sure in another six or seven weeks we'll be back with an appraisal of Series 13 of Doctor Who. Until then, get your costumes on, get your pumpkins lit, and get out the trick-or-treating boys and girls. We'll be back next time with something a little more whimsical. Thanks for listening.
1: Enjoy your Halloween. Bye now.
0: The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra and the programme was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.